Before we get started, just a quick heads up that the deadline for early bird pricing for ACSA's annual Distillers Convention and Vendor Trade Show is fast approaching, and we're looking forward to gathering in person this December 4th through 6th in Louisville, Kentucky. Visit AmericanCraftSpirits.org to register. You'll also want to head to the website if you make whiskey, because registration is also open for the third biennial Heartland Whiskey Competition, which is generously sponsored by State Corn Association Marketing Boards. Thanks. Something I never expected to see, but uh, yeah, the rye was pretty much my the first blend that I did as after I got the promotion to head distiller. So it was you know some something completely all my own, and see it actually end up in a bottle was pretty special, and also to have it win gold. San Francisco Spirits competition was incredible. From the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine, this is the Craft Spirits Podcast. I'm John Page, and today on the program, rare and hard to get. That phrase is printed on the labels of a new limited edition rare spirits collection from Eastside Distilling in Portland, Oregon. And speaking of rare, Eastside is the country's first and only publicly traded craft distillery. Our guest today is Eastside's head distiller, Jason Erickson. After starting his career in production and manufacturing positions, the Portland native found his way to distilling as a production assistant at Eastside in 2014, and he was promoted to head distiller in January of 2020. In a recent phone conversation, we chatted about his road to distilling and Eastside's new award-winning limited edition collection of spirits. We also discussed the benefits of aging in Oregon oak and the rise of Portland's craft spirits scene. But first I asked Jason how an English major eventually becomes a head distiller. Well, I originally started out my career in, uh, basically my whole career has been in a production environment. And I only went back to school uh, probably about 10 years after I finished high school. Uh, I went back to college uh, when I was working at uh, for a subsidiary of Fujifilm, North, uh, North America. I was working actually like swing shift in graveyard there. So I started taking online classes at Portland Community College uh, just to, because I wasn't sure yet what my major would be. And so uh, at a community college level, you just get your basic requirements out of the way. And they've had a really good setup. This is like even back in, uh, I think I started in like 2008. So they had a really good online program then, which worked well with my schedule. Uh, still a few classes that I had to go into the campus, uh, which when you work swing shift in the graveyard, it's kind of rough to work that into your schedule. I bet. And then, uh, you know, from watching my friends who had college degrees, get them and not really find jobs that matched their degree uh, kind of prompted me to just go for something that I was really interested in. And I've always loved books, always loved stories. So I chose English as my major and then transferred over to Portland State University. And then, yeah, for about two years, my uh, final two years at, at Portland State University, I was Oh man, that was a kind of a rough time. I was pretty much working graveyard uh, during the school term. I didn't have 
basically a full block of eight hours for sleep. So I would kind of have to like break it up, uh, take a lot of naps. Um, there were some online classes that I could do, which really helped. But as I got towards finishing my degree, I had to be in, in a classroom more often. Uh, and my job at the time was really helpful in working around my schedule and allowing me to free up enough time to, to complete my degree. So basically it was just the, the realization that a lot of companies just want a four-year degree and it doesn't really matter you know, what you get it in because the crux of a, of a four-year degree is that it teaches you how to learn. It, uh, it's structures your learning in a way where you can go out in the world and uh, pick a topic, any topic really, and then just analyze it in uh, a really constructive way and, you know, find out what you need to know. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess along those lines, are, are there any specific jobs that you had before that you felt like did a particularly good job for preparing you for a career as a distiller? Actually, when I, I worked for six months as a uh, phone tech support in a call center for network adapter cards for 3M. So uh, back when Wi-Fi wasn't really a thing, it's like right around 2000. Uh, and getting the ability to troubleshoot with somebody over the phone. So, you know, I had no, basically, they had to re relay what they were seeing on their computer screen to me. And then I would, you know, make a determination of how to address their problem and uh, solve it from there. So like that kind of troubleshooting skills helps out in any industry. <laughs> so I think that's probably yeah. the most valuable. And, and then you, you also, you eventually kind of moved over from the, the, the Fuji side of things to to work some in like was it food packaging food processing food yeah processing okay. so i was i think it was like uh 2010 i left fuji and i was looking to get into the beer brewing uh, of some sort and it at that time while it was like it was really up and coming here in portland the brew scene it was really difficult to break into it so I figured um, just any kind of food processing, beverage manufacturing would be valuable. So I found a place that was just about like a mile away from where I was living at the time. So it was a really easy commute. And it was aseptic food processing using Tetra Pak fillers to make tofu and almond milk. Okay. And that actually, it found it off of Craigslist uh, but it turns out that like making tofu is quite similar to mashing a beer in the sense that you receive a grain, in this case, it's, you know, soybeans, a legume, uh, and then you process those in a way like you, they have a soak and then they go through like same kind of like sort of cooking process that uh, a beer would go through and then just adding the coagulant and then cooking it. And so it's the workflow is fairly similar to that. So I figured that would be a, a good way in. And then 
I left that job, and then that's when, about six months later, I, again, found the Eastside job on Craigslist. How how close were you to to getting a job as a brewer? Like, what did, did you did that experience? Um, you know, making tofu did that actually get you like closer to anything, or or was it just that Portland was so saturated with with brewing that it was it was so hard? Yeah, it didn't. I I applied to a bunch of places and never really heard back. So it was it was a real challenge to get something. So yeah, when I saw that uh, the job at Eastside, I was like, never really thought about working at a distillery, but a lot of the principles are the same. So uh, yeah, just took a shot at it and was fortunate. So so take me back to you know when you first came on at Eastside. Uh, what what was your role when you started, and and what are some some of your like biggest memories from from those initial days and really I guess your first year. I actually remember the first time my my job interview, I met with Lenny Goddard, the the founder, and he's like, okay, well, you need to meet with Mel, our head distiller, and Mel Heim. And so I had a separate interview with her, and I was going to a Timbers game, uh, our local soccer team, and later after the interview, so I was wearing a Portland Timbers scarf. And I walked into the interview with Mel and she just looked at my timber scarf and she says, well, you're hired. So <laughs> got hired because she's a huge uh, Timbers fan too. Uh, like getting really into the local soccer scene. And that was, that and, was just coincidence. You didn't do like some kind of deep dive on, on her. Like, no. <laughs> okay. No, I, I was just, I was, uh, my friend had season tickets at the time. So I was going with him. Uh, yeah. A few hours later. So, uh, yeah, it's just ha- happenstance that I was wearing the scarf. And then, so yeah, started as a production assistant. And they were in the process of moving to a different uh, production facility, like a larger production facility. It was the original tasting room that uh, they were working out of, just like a, a tiny back room, probably like 600 square feet maybe five or 600 square feet yeah i was gonna say really I, tiny. I i saw somewhere that it was a thousand but it sounds like it was it felt even smaller i guess it felt smaller when you you have a bunch of you know blending tanks and you know filling gear and all that sort of stuff in there and also you know four or five people trying to package booze all at once so it, it felt really you know compact and then there was a you know tasting room out front so right around 11 or noon uh, there would be customers coming in so uh, even more people filled up the space and then uh, yeah there was this so there was a a larger production space that we basically did all our labeling and um, glass staging and then we would have to load up about however many cases that we were doing for the day, which is usually about only about 30 to 40 nine liter cases that we would do in the day, loaded up at a, in the back of a F-150, drive it over to the taste room production area, and then bottle it, load it back up into the F-150 and take it back over to the warehouse to be staged, to be distributed. So, uh, we weren't doing a lot 
in terms of volume, but the process was rather involved to get the booze because the production floor wasn't at street level. It was about like two level, about two feet below. There was a water powered elevator. It's like the only one that exists, I think like west of the Mississippi. There was only one guy that uh, could do maintenance on it out here. And so we would have to like load up an elevator and you, a person couldn't ride on it. It would, it would rise up about two feet to street level. And then we'd have to unload it from street level. And that was kind of our process going back and forth. So that was a really kind of challenging. And you did say a water powered elevator, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm not sure how that works. But, <laughs> but, I, but, uh, I'm going to have to Google that later. Yeah. Just to, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. just to see. Um, that's funny. Um, yeah. So how, how soon after that did, did, um, you said you're in the process of moving, right? So when, when did, you know, things open up a little bit? When did you feel like, oh, we can actually breathe in this space? I think it was about like six months later, we, six or eight months later that we finally made the move to the larger location. Uh, and then had, yeah, just had room to move around a bit. Still kind of challenging because we didn't have an actual like loading dock. So, you know, unloading barrels off of trucks or glass pallets off of trucks was kind of challenging at certain points. But uh, just having the extra room to spread out was a game changer. And, you know, you kind of hinted at this earlier that distilling wasn't kind of really on your your mind you know living in portland around that time you know right before you started just in general how much did you even think about or see distilleries like what was your involvement with with spirits like before you took the job i had no idea of the, the local scene really um pretty much the only one the distillery, Oregon distillery I could name was like Hood River Distillers because they had cheap vodka and I was a, you know, poor student at the time. And yeah. <laughs> that was what I was drinking. Sure. So, uh, it, yeah, it just never really, other than just going to having a drink at a bar, it was, it was never really in the forefront of my mind. And, and so kind of going from that place to, to now, like there's, you know, so many have popped up. Obviously there's, there's not as many as there are breweries but um what's it what's what's it been like to watch the the portland you know craft spirits scene grow up around you it's it's been really exciting like you know the old saying uh a rising tide you know raises all ships so uh just having that kind of that reputation of portland the same with breweries it's kind of like a destination place for for beer and for spirits now. So uh, having that, you know, community recognition, I think has been really valuable in growing a business. Kind of going back then to, you know, your, your early days there. Um, were you still like, well, I kind of want to do, I kind of want to look for, for brewing jobs or, or was, was there a point where you remember thinking like, no, this is, this is where it's at. I want to be a distiller. I think pretty much when I started there, it's 
you know, you find out something like a, a cool new business. And again, it's like a, something I never really thought about. Got really excited about it. Just learning about all that's out there. And yeah, just kind of got hooked from the beginning. I guess like beer brewing kind of like it, it was, it was always a hobby for me, but it just kind of fell out of the way as being a, a career path, I guess. Yeah. And I've, I've talked to some, uh, or heard some conversations with, with brewer or distillers recently who have, um, in fact, actually, I think we had, it was the distiller from, um, old Dominic, Alex, it was Alex Castle who was telling me, you know, she had started out as a, a brewer and once she distilled, she was like, I need this extra step. Like I, it's just, there's, <laughs> right. you know, it's almost like there's something uh, mystical about it. I don't know if you know the, the, the saying about cheese is, is it's milk sleep towards immortality. And it's like, I feel that way about whiskey. It's, it's beers leap towards immortality. It's mm. <laughs> a good way to put it. Yeah. A way of extending the life. Yeah. Well, and so you're, you know, so your, your time at the distillery, you know, eventually you end up being promoted uh, recently to head distiller, right? Correct. Yes. So, so talk to me a little bit about um, that process and and what that uh, promotion meant to you. Uh, so that was like having about I've been there for six years at that point, um, and it felt like the next logical step and the position that I really wanted and had been training for. So yeah, it just felt like the next progression in my career and yeah, the best way to move forward in the industry i think after a quick break more from our conversation with jason erickson this podcast is a production of the american craft spirits association and craft spirits magazine acsa is the only registered national nonprofit trade group representing the u.s craft spirits industry Through conventions, webinars, publications, competitions, special programs, and more, it's our mission to elevate and advocate for the community of craft spirits producers. Learn more at AmericanCraftSpirits.org. Craft Spirits Magazine is the unparalleled resource for in-depth insight and intelligence for the entire craft spirits universe. The bi-monthly digital magazine features the information and analysis that small, independent spirits producers and allied businesses need to operate in today's complex craft beverage market. To see our latest issue and subscribe for free, visit craftspiritsmag.com. This spring, Eastside released a limited edition line of spirits under the Eastside brand name. It includes three whiskeys, a barrel-aged navy-strength rum, barrel-aged gin, and a two-year-old brandy. The night before this interview, I was lucky enough to taste a few of the whiskeys, which are definitely worthy of seeking out. And to kick off the second part of the program, I was giving Jason some kudos for them and asking him what it was like to see his own signature on the closures atop those bottles. Ah, that's pretty cool. (laughs) Uh, Something I never expected to see, but uh, yeah, the rye was pretty much my the first blend that I did as after I got the promotion to head distiller. So it was, you know, some, something completely all my own. 
and see it actually end up in a bottle was pretty special. And also to have it win gold at San Francisco Spirits Competition was incredible. So yeah, I was I was I was gonna say I I know congrats are in order because I think you all have won a, a, several awards already for some of these, right? Yeah. The single malt won double gold San Francisco, uh, which I think is fantastic. It's it's one of the best spirits that we've put out. I think. Well, let's let's talk about that one a little bit more. What uh, you know, what all went into this, and and what makes it so special. So we bought uh, a smaller distillery that was based out of Hillsborough called Big Bottom. Right. I think about four four years ago, four or five years ago. And so they had a small single malt program. And so they had a few barrels put away of that. And I'm fairly certain I actually like helped uh, like three or four years ago, I was over there for a week helping them mash the, uh, the base for that. Um, so we closed that distillery and, and basically consolidated everything under one roof. And then uh, a couple years ago, we had, we purchased some cherry casks, about like 500 liter barrels, something like 70 or 75 years old, and decided to basically finish the single malt in these cherry cask barrels. And then, uh, so the bottle that you have, that spent about a year in those cherry casks. And then it was just a matter of, you know, finding the right time to pull it out after we got the flavor profile that that we were after and yeah that's what's sitting on your desk there yeah it, it, that was that was one that i did i took a a second uh little tiny pour of last night and just uh really enjoyed it um so beautiful beautiful job um thank you and and then the rye so that's a two to eight year small batch blend yeah, that's it's a mix, a blend of yeah, anywhere from two to eight year old rye, and then actually finished that, it rested for about sixty days in some organ oak barrels that we have, and uh, yeah, it turned out better than I expected. And and then just kind of briefly, can you can you walk through the rest of the the new products there's the the straight bourbon the barrel aged rum the barrel aged gin and the brandy yeah so uh basically we have, we have got a a stock of barrels that some of it came from big bottom there's other purchases that, that that we made and we're just you know uh finding a way to use them so we had a designer our, our marketing officer is working with a designer out of New York and he came up with these just incredible art deco inspired designs. And, um, he did, was working that out in New York and, uh, we were working on the juice out here in the West coast. And so, yeah, some of those were, we had two barrels of like 11 year old rum. So that we're selling in three, seven fives which are, it's incredible. Um, it's like got a strong molasses note and it's, it's not as sweet as you would expect from a, an aged rum. 
Uh, it's got a little bit more oak characteristic to it, but it's fantastic. Uh, the brandy, it was again the, distilled by the crew at Big Bottom, and then uh, aged for a minimum of two two years, I think. And that's got a great uh, like dark fruit, cinnamon, honeycomb flavor to it. Uh, straight bourbon, all that's like a minimum of 12 years. We've got some 14-year bourbon that goes into there, goes into that blend. Oh, nice. Pretty fantastic. And then what else we got? Oh, our HGN. So Big Bottom has, uh, they call it 91 Gen, that was fairly, fairly popular. But again, you know, as part of like our brand consolidation, kind of like close that brand down. And then, but they had gin that they had been aging in barrels for anywhere from like two to five years. And it's not really a category that you, you know, hear a lot about. It's kind of like up and coming right now. So having that at Navy Strength is, uh, from what we can tell, it's been opening up a lot of doors for bartenders and to put on menus. Yeah. So, I'm looking forward to seeing that. I don't know what, what you think about that particular category because it seems to be like a lot of people don't know what to do with it. Right. Right now. Yeah. I, I so, have a, I have a few, a few bottles around here and, um, and I'm enjoying them. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's definitely, you know, we did a story on this uh, just on gin as a category recently and, you know, touched a little bit on, on the aging process. And, you know, it's, there's, there's folks out there who are like just dead set, like, no, you should never put gin, uh, in a barrel, but then there's, there's plenty of people who are having great success with it. So I, th- I think it's just a matter right. of, you know, personal preferences really. Right. Right. And then communicating to consumers, like how you can use it is another way, but again, this, it w- works pretty much in any recipe that you would put a, a gin in like Negronis are fantastic with aged gins. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious is the so is you know it's kind of built as like a limited edition line the the this new lineup is is this like is the idea that this will come out every so often what's what's the I guess the future plans for for the East Side distilling line cuz you know previously I think you know folks would just associate East Side with like Burnside or the Portland or Azunia. Right. So what's the, it's a, a long way of saying what is, what does the future look like for this line? Yeah, it is meant to be limited. Like for example, the 11 year rum, we only have had two barrels of that. So um, that's going to be hard to get after a while. Uh, same with the gin. We're, we had a limited number of barrels of that. So um yeah, they they are meant to be limited, so that's why the tagline on there is rare and hard to get. Yeah, I was gonna say, we, yeah, yeah, I was gonna. Say, I I like the treatment of that on these bottles too. Shifting kind of gears over to like to to some of those other uh, lines, and and also you 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 kind of mentioned the the Oregon oak and the the single malt. Um, you know, for for folks who may not be familiar with it um could you talk a little bit about 
you know, what Oregon Oak is and what, what are the challenges and, and benefits of working with it? Yeah. So Oregon Oak is a species of, of American white Oak that grows only on the West coast of North America. It's got a range from about Northern California into Southern British Columbia. And a lot of the Oak savannas that existed are kind of like vanishing. So it's a, a pretty rare wood to even just find, but there's only one Cooper out here, uh, Oregon Barrel Works, that, that works with it. And it started as, from what I understand, as a, uh, a substitute for French oak. There was a shortage of French oak barrels here in the, on the West Coast in the late 70s, I think. And so they started using the local Oregon oak as kind of like a replacement for that because the flavor profile is kind of similar to, to a French oak. Okay. And, and then the kind of the drawback to it is it's a very tight grain. So it's difficult to cooper. So it's difficult to like bend the staves and have them seal properly. And so we have a, a few different sizes of barrels. We've got like uh, some 30 gallons and some like 10 or 53 to 60 gallon. And then some 400 liters, which is like a little over 100 gallon uh, punchins, and it, you can you can see it across those sizes. So like the smaller 30 gallon barrels, they're harder to to seal up. We get a lot of like small leaks from them, uh, a lot of drips from those that that we need to you know seal up with barrel wax, and that's just because it's you know it's so difficult to cooper that wood, and as the barrel gets, gets bigger, the, the leaks are less. So our 400 liter punchins are, are pretty much you know, clean. Those are easy to, to seal up and fill and pretty much not worry about. But in between there, it's, yeah, it's a, can leak a lot if you're not careful. Gotcha. The trade-off for me, I think, is the, the flavor that comes out of it and just the, the character that it adds to whatever we put in it. Yeah, well, and that's what I was also going to ask next. What um, what do you feel like it, it brings? It, it's kind of hard to describe. Like it, it took me years of wor working with all this juice to um, really identify what the organ oak was adding, but finally, like, honing on that flavor, it's like, it's like a dessert umami sort of flavor. I would, I would describe it. Mm, okay. So there's a lot of like caramels, uh, creme brulee, but it's infused with like, almost like a hickory smoke. Definitely like a, there's a smoky element to it, but it is like this, a really pleasant mix of like sweet and savory elements from uh, just both like the, the the wood sugars that are that come out of it, and then the toasted characteristics, the smoke that, that comes out of it, you know, from being charred or toasted. And I, I'm glad to hear you say that it it took you a while because I was, you know, as I was tasting through last night, I was trying to to find a way to put it, and I I couldn't yet. So that, that's that makes me feel <laughs> better. Um, 
what are, are you do you do you kind of know like what the sweet spot is in terms of like how how long it needs to age to to really get the right uh the right amount of that yeah it takes it like also depends on the the, the age of the barrels we've have some barrels that uh, basically the same ones that we started with, I think like eight years ago, when the organo program first started. Uh, those, those have been like cycled, you know, through a bunch of different batches and those still put out a lot of flavor, surprisingly. Like we haven't had, we haven't really had one barrel that we think of as spent. So uh, a lot of flavor comes out, but we find that it takes at, at least 30 days for any sort of characteristics to come through. So that's our, that's our absolute minimum. And then we've had some in barrel as long as I think 400 days. I was going to say, I guess that's really good given that it's um, such a scarce type of wood, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, for us, though, it's, they've held their value. And is it is anyone trying to like, uh, you know, harvest that that oak specifically for this, or what's the what is like the the future of of that side of things look like? As far as I know, uh, Oregon Barrel Works is the only cooperage that works with it. I, I actually I think Rogue might be starting to work with that also they have their own cooperage as well and i think they do a few barrels of that but it's not um and as far as far as i know it's still pretty widespread in the in the wine industry here in oregon okay. on the west coast so but again there's like uh almost all of the oregon oaks are on like private land uh really well managed and we're actually partnering with American Forest to uh, plant 10,000 new organ oak trees over the next 18 months. So uh, it's great. It's a sustainable product. Anything on the the general um, east side lineup of you know Burnside products, um, the the Portland potato vodka. A- anything on that side that you're um, also excited to to talk about right now um or anything that you're um you know anything that you are working on for the future that you're excited about yeah so the burnside black is actually one of my new favorites it's uh it's a rye based blend that we're putting out at, at barrel strength barrel strength is really fantastic super easy to drink for being barrel strength. Um, also our Buckman cast strength, which is another extension of our Burnside line. Uh, that's uh, it's, it, it's just been, it's been really nice to put out a cast strength. Yeah. Expression of our burn, Burnside line. So that's been pretty awesome. Uh, Wayway coffee rum is one of our, uh, in the, in the, production area it's, it's one of our favorites to make just because it's it's so delicious and we did have a, a line of 
flavored whiskeys. I'm not sure if you you were ever familiar with that. Uh, we had a Mary Mary whiskey for many years. Yep, I, then, I, I uh, saw that on the website. Yeah, so that went away for a little bit, uh, but we're bringing it back. I think fall this or late summer this year. Uh, new formulation, uh, new packaging that you know has that Art Deco design, which is I just absolutely love. So. Looking forward to having that come back. That'll be nice. Yeah, that's been a yeah, it's been a customer favorite for, for years. Um, I, I imagine this the the answer to this question could could change depending on you know the the time of year and also like depending on what you've released recently. But of you know of all your products, what are what are the the couple two or three things that you are usually enjoying at home yourself? Uh, always the Portland potato vodka. So I always have a bottle of that. Um, Labor coffee one for me is seasonal. I tend to have that more around uh, the wintertime because mixing that with eggnog is just absolutely delicious. Um, and then, yeah, just the Burnside blended bourbon. That's my everyday go-to making an old-fashioned sort of drink. Nice. Um, well, taking like a, 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 you know, more of the 10,000 foot view of, of everything, uh, I'm actually meant to touch on this when we were, were talking about your promotion. Um, you know, obviously Eastside being a, a publicly traded, uh, craft distillery, um, what, what is that like to be like? a, a, a craft distiller, but you know, also you're you know, there's quarterly earnings reports and, um, things like that going on. You know, I think most craft distillers don't, don't experience that. So given that you're the only one, what's it like? I find it to be actually liberating. (laughs) So like, uh, you know, I think a lot of craft distillers, wear a lot of hats so they have to like manage all the finances and then distribution compliance all that sort of stuff when you're a corporation there's basically a dedicated person for each of that each of those things yeah so it it frees me up for just basically like experimentation and and innovation so basically i've got this kind of huge playground to work with so I think that's been the, the biggest benefit. Um, I usually like to ask people like, you know, where they see the distillery in 10 years, but I also realized that that would be a forward looking statement for a, uh, <laughs> a publicly traded company. But, you know, just what, what are, what excites you about the, the future in general, whether it's from just, you know, the overall company standpoint or even just specific, spirits that you're excited to work with or, or it could even just be like what are you excited about as the world is hopefully returning to normal oh just getting you know back out into that the cocktail culture um i don't know like how big that is like where you are but it's it's been a huge fixture here in portland for quite a while so uh there's a lot of great cocktail bars here that have been just fantastic to visit um in terms of like just in general, moving forward, uh, 
I'd like to focus more on, or and I hope the industry as a whole focuses more on sustainability, just because climate change is going to be the next huge issue. You know, it's, all spirits are based in, in agricultural products. So making sure that all the supplies are there and that we're able to, you know, responsibly maintain sourcing, I guess is going to be the biggest challenge going forward and also probably one of the most exciting, I think. Yeah, what what uh, what types of things is Eastside doing on, on that side of uh, things in, in terms of trying to be more sustainable? Uh, a lot of small stuff right now, like switching over to LED lights, that sort of thing, um, monitoring electricity output. Uh, I do my own small part. I buy bicycle to work. So, you know, a drop in the bucket, but it's kind of going along with it. You know, every little bit counts. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, and then uh, moving forward, I'd, I'd love to, you know, work on a distilling project with, like, food waste because that's I think it's like something like 30% of the food produced uh, in I think at least the U.S. is is, is wasted so being able to capture some of that uh, because you know it's energy that can be converted and can be you know sugars that can be fermented and distilled so I think uh, some a project using that would be really cool um, yeah and just like uh Hopefully in the future, working with suppliers uh, to, you know, just like find a more sustainable way to maintain the industry is, is uh, it's going to be challenging, but also exciting, I think. Yeah. Well, and, um, you, you know, you mentioned going out for cocktails again in cocktail culture, uh, where if if you had to give some recommendations to folks who might be, uh, you know, traveling to Portland, um, what's like one or two spots where, where you, uh, you would love to be yourself drinking what kind of cocktail, uh, in the near future? Yeah. Uh, so vault martini lounge was one of the first ones that opened up. I was actually, I was at their soft opening and I think it was like 2003 or 2004. Uh, they've been a staple for, you know, since the beginning. And then uh, I actually live right across the street from a really cool place called The Botanist. And they did, uh, they responded to the pandemic like about as perfectly as you can. They took over uh, a bar that had went out of business, basically like right above their, where the location was. And they had like this big open, or have this big open patio right now. They spaced all the tables eight feet apart. Um, have QR codes for menus and just really knocked it out of the park and also like paved the way for uh, getting cocktails to go past it as legislation here in Oregon. Yeah. And they make a great bees knees cocktail. <laughs> so that's one nice. of my favorites there. Nice. Um, well, winding things up, any, any words of wisdom for the craft spirits community moving forward? Um, your, your colleagues, uh, 
folks out there drinking your spirits? Uh, well, it's great to have like this kind of community to to grow with, and I'm just really looking forward to what the industry has in store. Um, we're seeing a boom in craft distilling, kind of like we did with beer, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. So, just seeing that explosion of distilleries, even in spite of the the pandemic, is is really exciting moving forward. That's our program for today. Thanks again to Jason Erickson for joining us. You can learn more about Eastside and all of the distillery's products at eastsidedistilling.com. We'll be back in a few weeks. Until then, thanks for listening and cheers. Cheers.